Amen. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here. It is good to be with you this morning. I want to start off today by asking you a question, a question I want you to discuss with a few people. It's one of my favorite questions to ask people. Here it is. It's that if you were going to make a business card for Jesus, what would it say? What would its title be? You could throw some design elements. Whatever it is, you go ahead and discuss with a few people around you, and I'll bring us back in just a moment. All right, let's go ahead and bring it back in. I would love to go one by one and hear your answers. We're not going to do that today. (laughs) As I've asked this question over the years, I've noticed some trends. Savior gets brought up real quick. Lord, God, King. Sometimes people get really like want to be really theologically precise and like fully God, fully man, and they like fill up the whole card with this theological statement. Some people get cute and they say like, oh, he was like a winemaker or a bird watcher. (laughs) But something I rarely ever hear is that his title would be Prince of Peace or anything about peacemaking. Now, I don't think that we see Jesus as anti-peace or anything. We all kind of have a sense that Jesus is into it. Like, he's pro-peace, he's for it, but we don't tend to view it as one of his main things, as core to his mission. We tend to think of it as like a side hustle that Jesus is into, like a side benefit of his work, or maybe even like a hobby. I have a friend who's really into snowboarding, but it's a seasonal thing. Just once a year, he's all about snowboarding when it's winter, but then when it's summer and spring, he gets into some other stuff. And sometimes I think we can conceive of peace as a side hustle for Jesus, a hobby for Jesus, and a hobby for the church. That when winter rolls around and Christmas rolls around, we start singing about peace on earth and the Prince of Peace and all those sorts of things. And it's good and it's fine, but it's not one of the main things. And so as we continue in this Advent season, reflecting on who Jesus is and what he's doing when he comes in his incarnation and when he comes in the future to return again, I want us to see that Peace and peacemaking is not just a side hobby or a side hustle, but it's core to his mission and that Jesus is in the business of peacemaking. But that peacemaking might look a little different than we assumed. So go ahead and take your Bibles, open to Isaiah chapter 9, starting with verse 6. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. 
His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. He will sit on the throne of David and over the kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time and forevermore. I know a lot of us are familiar with those words. They're kind of associated with Christmas. Even if you're not around church much, you probably have seen like a Christmas card or an ornament that says, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. We're familiar with those words, but have you ever thought about what was it like to hear those words to the original audience who did not have Christmas in mind when they were first hearing this? See, it was written to God's people in a time of chaos and conflict. It was about 200 years after King David had died. The, the kingdom had been split in two. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And this southern kingdom is hearing these words from Isaiah the prophet who's speaking into their situation. And it was a bleak situation, a dark situation. Uh, a situation where they were surrounded by military superpowers who were stronger and could any moment come in and wipe them out. Where they were led by this like foolish 20-something king who's kind of a coward. And he was leading the nation in a downward spiral of idol worship and widespread injustice and moral corruption. And this wasn't new. Generation after generation, since the times of King David and King Solomon, you kept getting these kings who would fail over and over again, and the community was wilting in this time of conflict and chaos. And if you were there, you would probably wonder, has God forgotten us? Will there ever be a season of peace, or are we just going to be surrounded by conflict? Will there be a king who will come and actually make things right? And into this situation, Isaiah, the prophet, has good news. He's got a message of hope. He said that there's going to be a child who's going to be born in the lineage of King David. And that he is going to do something unique. That even though that they had experienced king after king forgetting about God, God had not forgotten about them, and he was going to send a king, this prince of peace, on a mission to bring peace to a land that was tormented and conflicted and filled with chaos. This was his work, his mission, his primary job description. Isaiah gives the prince of peace a job title. That's that's the Prince of Peace. That's what would be on the business card. And he gives a job description. He says in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. It's his identity and his mission. He's about peace. And he's coming. But for us, when we hear that word peace, we can tend to have some different associations. In English, it is a cheap word that can mean a lot of things. Sometimes we hear peace and we, we, hear of, we think of like 
hippies in, drug, uh, in drum circles, you know, anti-deodorant, <laughs> spilling platitudes about how we should all just get along. We can also tend to think of peace in the extremes. We think that peace is the work of a diplomat. It's not really stuff that we get into. It's about international relations. It's political leaders who are doing peace treaties and, and negotiating out there somewhere. It's like the UN soldiers with their blue helmets putting up barricades to stop war between people who really don't like each other. It's good, but it's not a part of our everyday life. It's something that happens out there, the work of diplomats. Or we can swing the other direction and think that peace is the work of chamomile tea. Chamomile tea or some other method to bring internal calm or peace. If you ever walk through a tea aisle, I am oh, just shocked by the promises that tea makes about what it can provide for your life. The chamomile tea that we serve says on the box, if you read it, that it will melt all your worries away. So if you're worried about anything, we've got a solution for you out there. But this type of peace is this internal type of peace where you're blocking out the world and putting lavender essential oils and battery-powered babbling brooks and magnesium supplements and meditation apps just to have this sense of inner peace. Two extremes. We tend to think it's this, the work of diplomats or the work of chamomile tea. But the word peace in Hebrew, in the scripture, is much richer than that. And if we don't pay attention to what this word means, we could think that Jesus is the prince of chamomile tea or the prince of the UN instead of this rich vision that the Bible gives. In Hebrew, the word that we're looking at here in Isaiah 9 is the word shalom. It means wholeness or completeness or well-being or flourishing in all different dimensions of life. Cornelius Plantinga, a theologian I really appreciate, he says it's the webbing together of God and humans and creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom is the way things were meant to be. It's the way God created the world to be and the way for the different components of life to work together. But when sin comes in, it tears apart shalom. And the Prince of Peace is coming to bring it and put it back together, bring us back to God, bring us back with each other, bring creation back in its right place. It's a vision that's so expansive and so good that it's hard to describe. And Isaiah actually gives a little bit of an explanation. He gives some of the job description of the Prince of Peace. Let me just summarize it real quick. Verse 3, he says, it's, the Prince of Peace is about the end of poverty, that the Prince of Peace will make the fields and the crops flourish to where everyone can feast together. Verse 4, it's the end of oppression, where the Prince of Peace snatches the rod out of the hand of the oppressor and breaks it. You can see him snapping it over his knee to say that oppression is no more. In verse 5, it's, it's about the end of war, where the Prince of Peace takes boots and garments and, and things that were used to dress up for battle and rolls them up and throws them in the fire because war has ended. It is no more. And Isaiah 
is using language familiar with them in that time to describe this comprehensive flourishing that is shalom. One of my favorite things to do with prophets is to ask the question, what would they say if they were speaking in our day? And they're using the images that are familiar to us because not many of us are wearing like military boots everywhere we go unless you're either in the military or you are like John Crawford and you're just making a fashion statement. <laughs> but we're not often working in the fields. We, these images are not as familiar to us, but I wonder what it would be like if Isaiah was speaking to us and using the images of our day to describe what shalom is like. I imagine he might say that doctors and pastors and counselors are all sent to the unemployment line because things are made right. Graveyards are turned into amusement parks and ambulances are turned into ice cream trucks because there's no more death. He might say that tanks are turned into hot tubs, that syringes become squirt guns, and your estranged crazy uncle is back at the Thanksgiving table. <laughs> it's this vision of things being made right. And you can imagine the people reading this and hearing this from Isaiah and wondering, who is this Prince of Peace? Their immediate assumption, because it says he's going to sit on the throne of David, is probably that it would be King Ahaz's son or one of his descendants, and his son, Hezekiah, ended up being a pretty good king. They're thinking it's probably a future king that's coming that's going to make things right. But here's the thing. The job description here is too lofty too high for any human to fully execute. It says that he's the mighty God, that he's everlasting father, and that his kingdom won't cease. Generation after generation, after these words of Isaiah were brought to the community, they waited for a king who could actually fill this job description, and no one could ever do it generation after generation till they're carried off into exile and people probably stopped even hoping that the Prince of Peace would show up. But then one day, some strange things started happening. There were rumors about a baby being born of a virgin from the family of David. Rumors about King Herod, the local king, being afraid of a little baby. Rumors about armies of angels erupting in the sky, singing about peace on earth. And there was a candidate, a candidate for the Prince of Peace. That people were coming from miles around to see this baby and to wonder if he is the Prince of Peace, if he is the Messiah, if he is the King who's come to make things right. Could he fulfill the job description of bringing peace with God, peace between one another, and peace in this world of pain and physical hardship. And when you open up the New Testament and the Gospels and you read about Jesus, what we see is that he is the only one who's able to fulfill this job description of the Prince of Peace. But he does it in two parts. 
He starts his work in the first advent and his first coming. He inaugurates that work of peace, that kingdom. And then he completes it in the future when he returns to make all things new. He fulfills the job description, but he does it in two different movements. In his first coming, he came and he brought peace with God. People who were alienated from God and feeling like God had stopped speaking were now hearing the voice of Jesus and hearing God speak, hearing him proclaim forgiveness over them and welcoming them back to the table with God. And it wasn't just words, it was action. He went to the cross. And as Romans 5 says, that when we were his enemies, when we were distant from God, he reconciled us to himself. He made peace through the suffering of Jesus on the cross so that we could be welcomed into God's family and our sins are forgiven and we are at peace with him. He made peace with others. When Jesus showed up, he began to gather former enemies and turn them into family, people from different ethnic and political and generational and economic backgrounds and saying, you are my people. As Ephesians 2 says that Jesus is our peace. And what he does in his work is he tears down the wall of hostility that would keep people separated from each other and makes them family. And he began the work of restoring creation, bringing shalom to the creation as he calms the storms and he heals diseases, he gives sight to the blind, and he conquers death through his death. He began the work of the Prince of Peace, bringing shalom. But then we see that there's a promise that in his second coming, he's going to complete the job, complete his work. Revelation 21 says that the dwelling place of God is going to become the dwelling place of humans and that God is going to show up in such a dense and near way that it's like he's moving in with us. That the, he'll fully bring peace with, between people as people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are brought together and brought to the table. It'll be a place where Palestinians and Israelis Russians and Ukrainians, boomers and millennials, <laughs> Democrats and Republicans will all be brought together at the table because they've been purchased by the blood of Christ. And he brings peace to creation. In this second coming, Revelation 21 says that he's going to wipe away every tear and death will be no more and no more mourning and no more crying and pain will be gone. The former things have passed and he will have completed the work of bringing shalom and restoring all that is messed up and broken. In the course of history, there's been only one person who could fulfill this job description of the Prince of Peace and that person's name is Jesus. And what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas is that he inaugurated that work when he first came and that he is coming to complete it when he returns again. I imagine, as you hear that, some of you are saying, I love it. What he has done, his work is beautiful. In the beginning when he came and when he comes again. But what about all the stuff in between? If peacemaking is Jesus's job description, if, if he is about 
restoring the brokenness, where is he at now? Is he on a 2,000-year break? Because I still see death. I still see pain. I still see a lack of shalom. Has he forgot about his job description? And this brings me to my second movement. Big thing I want to say today is that, yes, Jesus is in the business of peacemaking, but it is a family business. And what Jesus did before he ascended to heaven is that he gathered a people, commissioned a people, and said, you are now God's children, and you are incorporated into the family business, and calls that to the church to be a people of peace that Jesus is still showing up and doing the work of bringing shalom, but he shows up through us as the Spirit indwells us. And as we go into the broken places of the world, it is a family business. You see Jesus giving his people a job description and a job title in the, in the Beatitudes where he says, "'Blessed are the peacemakers.'" for they shall be called children of God. I always say blessed like a British person when I read the Beatitudes. You could say blessed. We can often overlook this, but what's happening here is that, that Jesus is pronouncing blessing and he's saying that this is your job description. This is your title to be peacemakers and it's in the family business to where when people see peacemaking happen, they say, you must be one of God's kids. How do you recognize God's children? That they have a family resemblance to the father. That they look like their father in the way that they bring peace. They preach the gospel so that people can be reconciled to God. Or reconcilers in communities of division. Or people who who bring a, a sense of care and mending to the places of pain that you must be God's children. Our primary relationship is as children to God but, and not employees. But being children means that we've, we've been enlisted in the family business. Now, if you've ever known somebody who has a family business and they've hired their children, you know that it can be risky <laughs> because the reputation of the father is resting on children who can sometimes be knuckleheads. <laughs> that when the children don't do their job, it's the father who gets the bad Yelp review. And that a lot of times when people are saying, where is God? Because there are, are, there are people who are alone and have no one to be there. That there are communities of division. They're saying, where is God? Is he not fulfilling his job description? In many ways, it's actually us who are not fulfilling our job description of carrying that peace. I've got an experience with some family business. When I was a teenager, my mom worked for a real estate agent. She was an administrative assistant. And she said, you know what? I'm going to take care of Jim. I'm going to give him a little chance to be responsible. So me and my friend Deshaun, who lived with us in the house, she said, I'm going to give you a bunch of flyers, and I'm going to pay you, I think it was either three cents or seven cents per flyer that you put on the door to promote this real estate agent. 
And we thought, man, we're going to be rich, right? <laughs> Gave us this big stack. We start putting it on doors, and we realize it's the heat of Arizona summer. We're in this nice neighborhood, and we're thinking, man, I'd rather just be a Dairy Queen. And I got this idea. I said, they're going to pay us for how many flyers we don't bring back. We could just throw them in the trash can, and we're going to get all the money, and we could still go to Dairy Queen. So this was my brilliant plan. We threw them in the trash can, but God has an interesting sense of humor. In the Arizona monsoon season, these dust storms, these haboobs can be intense, but there's only been one storm that I've ever known of that has knocked over one of those big dumpsters, and it was that day. <laughs> and when we got back home with ice cream still on our face probably, my mom was seething in anger. She had said that they had dozens of calls from people who said that a trash can tipped over and it flooded the streets with these flyers for this real estate agent, littered everywhere. It was one of the worst things that they had seen and they said, we will never use you as a real estate agent. See, my mom did good work. She was fulfilling her job description but I was not taking up my job description, and it reflected poorly on her reputation. And as God's people, we are called to take on the job description of being peacemakers and moving into places of brokenness and being conduits of peace to represent our Father, to be people who enter into the world with forgiveness so that they see the one who forgives, with with embrace and welcoming people to our table and to be friends with them so that they see the God who welcomes them. Of kindness, so that they see the kindness of God. It's our job description. So you might be thinking, okay, well, I don't want to be a bad employee like you clearly are, Jim. What's on our job description as peacemakers? Well, let me just give you two things. There are a number of things I could put on here, but I just want to give you two ways that we fulfill our job description as peacemakers and participate in the Father's business, in the business of the Prince of Peace who's bringing shalom. The first one is prayer in action. Prayer in action for the peace of the city. A passage that we've talked about a number of times in this church is Jeremiah 29.7. And it was, it was, this, it was written to these, these people who were in exile. They were captured and taken in and, and, and captured by their enemies and said, you have to live in our city in Babylon. And God's instructions for them are not just hunker down, are not just avoid people, are not just kind of like do your own thing. But it is prayer and action. It says to seek the peace and prosperity of the city I've carried you into exile and pray to the Lord for it. God calls them to be a, a praying people that pray for God's favor and his blessing and his shalom even on the people who had harmed them and carried them off into exile. And he calls them to action saying, seek the shalom of the city. Do the type of things that increase the flourishing of this place. It's a part of our calling. 
to move into places of pain and to be conduits of shalom. God's sending us, sending his people to every neighborhood and to every country, to every occupation and every place where there's an absence of shalom to represent him, to be his peacemakers and to do the types of things that help people understand that they can be reconciled to God, that reconcile people who are at odds with one another, that mend the physical pain and brokenness of this world. Some of us are sent into dorms or neighborhoods to look for the lonely and say, you are now my people. Some of us are sent to our offices and work and push against the culture of cynicism and slander. Some are sent to the foster care system, the prison system, sent to help homeless people find homes. Whatever it is, it's move to the place of brokenness and be a conduit of shalom. I could literally tell tell you a hundred stories of people in this congregation who are doing that. I'm going to tell you my absolute favorite today. It's about Jenny Mullins, my wife. In 2011, we started to notice with our daughter there were some developmental delays. And we entered the complicated process of navigating that and seeing what services she needed. And at the end of the day, they gave us a list of speech therapists, occupational therapists, child psychologists, and all types of schools that she would need. And if she didn't, it was going to mess up her whole life. That was the message. It was a lot. And a lot of the times you could just feel like you might buckle, and, and I was overwhelmed. But in the midst of that, I watched my wife, this formerly shy person, become a fierce advocate for our daughter. And she dove into the world of special needs and education and developmental services to figure out how to get our daughter what she needs. And in the process of this, we realized Jenny was really good at this. <laughs> she could navigate bureaucracies. She, she would become like a lion with courage whenever she was speaking on behalf of kids. And so other parents started asking her for help. And then she started helping them. And she realized that this could be a job, and she started a business, and it actually paid pretty well, but something didn't sit right with her. She was saying, but the people who need this the most don't have the money to do it. Kids who are in the foster care system, people who are maybe lower income but need someone to advocate for them, Parents were both parents were working and another parent couldn't like get off to be in these meetings. She would say like, I, I, I couldn't, like if you were a kid, Jim, when you were a kid, you wouldn't have been able to afford these services. So she had this idea that she was going to stop her business and turn it into a nonprofit and focus on providing educational advocacy for children who are in the foster care system. And I was like, hey, well, maybe you should <laughs> slow down because that's a lot of money we might be losing there. <laughs> but she was following Jesus, not my fear, right? Over the past five years, Jenny and her organization have served 3,000 kids in the foster care system. And if you know what that means, if you know what that means, it means that they have likely kept kids out of prison, 
kept kids from being trafficked, kept kids from being homeless. Everywhere I go in the city, I run into people who have a tear-filled story about how Jenny showed up and advocated on their behalf and brought shalom in a season of pain and of darkness. And what did she do? She didn't have uh, an an extensive education in this area. I don't think they give degrees about it. An abundance of time or an abundance of money. But what she did is she looked at a place where things were broken and said, that's the place that needs some shalom. And she locked in and she stayed and she persevered even when it was hard. And so as people who are taking up the job description of of peacemakers, of shalom makers. What this means is that we are called to find a place. We don't have to cover every place, but a place of brokenness and say, how do I move into this place of brokenness and be a conduit of God's peace? If you're sitting there wondering, what is that for me? I just have one piece of advice for you. Look around. Don't overthink it. There's broken, painful things around you. Move toward that thing. And if you're like, well, I'm going to overthink it anyway, I got an answer for you as well. This is why we put together these prayer and action groups. What they are is it's an opportunity for people to get together to understand the brokenness of the world, understand the problems, to pray, and then develop a plan of action to where you can use your gifts to help address some aspect of hardship, to bring shalom. So we have the local shalom one, which you heard about earlier, that's looking at the needs of the city, global hospitality, which is learning how to love the nations and international students and refugees, and then the trafficking one that's pushing against trafficking. So whether it's something you figure out on your own or in a prayer and action group, part of our job description is to look out into the world where there's brokenness and be conduits of shalom. Prayer and action for the city, but then the second part of our job description is reconciliation. Reconciliation for the peace of the church and the peace of the relationships that are closest to us, our family, our friends, so on and so forth. We all know that there are many people who are out in the world doing good things, but their interpersonal relationships are a wreck. And Jesus says, no, this is a part of your peacemaking as well. I mean, there are so many places in Scripture where we could go, but where I want to really hone is is Jesus' heart in John 17, where he prays that we would be unified, that we would be one, and that in our oneness we reflect the love of God. And he doesn't just give us his heart and his desires, but Jesus also gives us brilliant strategy. He tells us this two-step strategy that if executed, would solve 90% of our conflict. You want to hear it? Apparently some of you are cool with conflict, but (laughs) here's what he says. Take the log out of your eye, step one in Matthew 7. Step two, then take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's this call 
in step one to remove the log, to audit your own actions, your motives, your potential sin before you address that in others. It's this hilarious image. I be, I'm seriously thinking Jesus is telling a joke here about how absurd it would be if a log is stuck to your eye and you're like, let me get that sawdust there. Jesus is saying, look in the mirror at your own sin, at the ways that you might be wrong before looking in the microscope and scrutinizing others. But we tend to do the opposite. In this church, I've noticed that so many of us are committed to reconciled relationships, but we live in a culture to where we have to be reminded of this because because this is one of the most countercultural things that exists. We live in a culture that says, be, because of our focus on ourself, our self-absorption, if you feel something, then you are automatically right. If you think something because it's you, you're automatically right. We're a culture of where we're experts on other people's sin, but blind to our own. And Jesus flips it. He says, you want to know the priority when you're solving conflict? The priority is you looking in the mirror and your first move to say, is there something I can own here? A world where people say I might be wrong is a place where reconciliation can happen. A place that says I'm definitely right is a place that will eventually implode. It's a prideful posture that says, well, I can't be wrong because I think it, because <laughs> I feel it. But we criticize others. I had one of these moments the other day. It was so blatant and ridiculous. I was watching the Arizona Cardinals. You can kind of get my blood boiling sometimes. And Kyler Murray, one of the fastest players in the NFL, didn't get a first down that I wanted him to get. And reflexively, I just yelled at the TV. I said, bro, can you just run a little faster? And this moment of self-awareness washed over me <laughs> as I'm sitting in my recliner chair. The most athletic thing I am doing in the moment is balancing a plate of nachos on my chest so that there's minimal distance between the nachos and my face. And I am criticizing one of the fastest players in the NFL that he needs to run harder. He could probably run a 99-yard touchdown before I could even reload the nachos in the kitchen. And it's funny in this situation, but how often do we approach our other relationships that way? With this clear-eyed critique of the other person and where they're wrong and where they have sinned, but blind to what we have to own with our roommates, in our families, with our coworkers, with our RCs. And that if we take Jesus's invitation to say, I am going to look at me first before addressing the other person, that could be very powerful. But my question to you is this. Seriously, ask yourself this question. When is the last time you can remember being wrong? When was the last time that you remember 
confessing a sinful attitude? When do you remember having an opinion where you look back at it and you're like, oh yeah, that was dumb. I, <laughs> I was wrong. If you can't think of a recent time when you were wrong, then you might be being shaped by a culture of self-absorption rather than the self-awareness that Jesus and the gospel brings. And rather than being a peacemaker in the world, you might be inadvertently, unintentionally, diminishing shalom in the lives of others. Step one, take the log out of your eye. But that's not the only step. He gives step two. He says, then take the speck out of your brother's eye. Address it directly with them. I think sometimes people hear this passage and they think that Jesus is saying that you are always at fault for everything. And that's not what it's saying. It's saying, look at yourself first, but then sometimes there are things that need to be addressed with others. And that is a loving thing. That is the way of a peacemaker where you go directly to the person and bring it up with them. It's important because half the time it's a misunderstanding or misaligned expectations the other half of the time, it's a real issue, and it is a gift for them to be able to hear and to see this area where they may, may need to grow and that they might have been blind to. This is what we're called to. This is the posture of a peacemaker. If we do this, we will have people who are growing in Christ and reconciled relationships. But often we take other moves. Some of us, instead of talking to the person, we talk about the person with others in gossip, usually couched in like language of concern or maybe a prayer request. Or others of us just come in with careless words, just say whatever's on our mind without really thinking it through and say, I'm, I'm the type of person who just tells it how it is. You're not telling it how it is. You haven't reflected enough to know how it is. You're just saying the first thing on your mind. This is not the posture of a peacemaker, but it's the posture of a peacebreaker. And these are the types of things that erode our world, that split families, that rip apart friendships and fellow believers that are supposed to be in community together. Others think we're doing pretty good. We pretend like everything is fine while we quietly just seethe in contempt. And because we think we're not bringing it up, that we're actually good, or we don't address it at all, we just fade away. We're in a culture where this language of cutting people out of your life is just common vernacular. That is not the movement of a peacemaker. That is the movement of a peace faker who's acting it out, but not restoring things. There you go. What he's calling us to is a part of the job description is to have reconciled relationships with one another, where we move toward one another because we know that Jesus is in the business of peacemaking and it's a family business and this is on our job description. It's important because we live in a world where families are splitting and communities are dividing and friendships are ending. But what if there could be a haven if the church Living into her calling and job description was a haven of reconciliation in a conflicted world where you could be known and cared for and spoken into and loved. Peacemaking 
is not just a hobby for Jesus. It's core to his mission. It's what he's about. And it's a family business. It's core to our mission and what we are about as members of his family. And so as we come to the table and we prepare to take communion and we are receiving our job description as peacemakers, I imagine that many of us are hesitant, that we feel bitter or cynical or hesitant to move towards another person. And my message to you is not just try harder, but my message to you is that in this moment now, go deeper. Go deeper into what the Prince of Peace has done for you and let that shape your posture toward the world. If you lack forgiveness, let this be a moment where you dive deeper into all that you have been forgiven and all that has been extended to you. If you lack love, let this be a moment where you dive deeper into the love of God and remember the way that he showed up for you and made you his child. If you don't want to move towards another, let this be a moment where you reflect on how God moved towards you in Christ. And if you don't want to invite others to the table, let this be a moment where you come to the table, the table of communion, and you receive the invitation as a former enemy, now child, who's been given a feast by God. Take the bread and remember that a body was broken and battered and bruised so that you could be welcomed into God's family and have a seat at the table. Take the wine and remember the blood that was shed in this act of violence so that you could have peace and let it shape you into a person who extends shalom to others. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that while we were distant and while we were your enemies and that while sin was the barrier between us, you tore down that barrier as your body was torn on the cross. We thank you for the ways in which you have torn down the barrier that separates us from others who are in Christ and the ways in which you are gonna come and restore and renew all that is broken. And in the meantime, God, we ask that you would empower us and send us to be people who seek the shalom of the city and of our neighbors and in the places of pain and have reconciled relationships with one another. And that as we are doing it, people would see the image and the character of the Father, the God of peace, and of the Son, the Prince of Peace, and of the Spirit, the one who indwells us and gives us peace. In Jesus' name, amen.